May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There's a book, uh, there's a novel called Peace Like a River, and in this novel, the novel traces the story of this family, a father with his three children, and this father is a man of prayer, he's close to the Lord, and throughout this, miracles. And um, at one point in the story, early on in the story, his daughter says something about miracles that I thought was, uh, was interesting and, and even connects, I think, with some of what the New Testament has to say to us about miracles. Uh, she says, the daughter of this man, people fear miracles because they fear being changed, though ignoring them will change you too. And then she says this, no miracle happens without a witness, someone to declare, here's what I saw, here's how it went, make of it what you will. Well, in our gospel reading, we are, we are reading the story of a witness to a miracle of Jesus. John, a disciple of Jesus, is saying, here's what I saw, here's how it went. Now, He does a little bit better than make of it what you will. Because he's challenging the readers to believe in the Son of God. To believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. John says in this passage at the end, this miracle, through this miracle, Jesus manifested his glory. And in John chapter 1, He says that the glory of Jesus is the glory of the only Son of the Father. That's John 1.14. He says, and we have seen his glory. I think he's talking about the eyewitnesses, the first disciples. We have seen this. We have seen the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says, we the disciples saw this happening in this miracle of Jesus changing water into wine. He manifested his glory, and as a result of that, his disciples believed in him. John wants us to see the glory of the Son in this first sign. He wants us to see the splendor, the brilliance, the creativity, the power of God in this miracle. He wants us to join with him in trusting in Jesus. That's what he wants us to make of it. It is an incredible miracle, this turning water into wine. Somebody took the time to estimate based on how much water was available. John is very particular about the details, a mark of a good historical record. Uh, he, He says there were six stone jars there. These jars could hold 20 to 30 gallons of wine. And so somebody estimated based on that, that Jesus' miracle would have produced approximately 2,000 four-ounce glasses of wine. A lot of wine. And those feasts oftentimes lasted many days. So there would be plenty of wine to last several days. Incredible. Not just the quantity, of course, but the very fact that Jesus turned water into wine. Now, Some people try to explain away the miracles of Jesus. And I heard an explanation, an attempt to explain this miracle away. 
it went like this. It said, you know, this was actually kind of a joke. Um, in that culture, for the host and hostess to run out of wine, this is a culture of hospitality, this would have brought great shame on this family. Everybody would have remembered, oh yeah, that's the family that ran out of the wine. They couldn't take care of their guest. And that would have hung over the bride and the groom and their parents for the rest of their life. So what's going on here is Mary comes to Jesus and says, there's a social calamity about to take place here. It's very embarrassing. They're about to run out of wine. And Jesus gets the idea, well, let's just pretend that the water is wine. This is the explanation to try to undermine the supernatural here, the supernatural miracle. And so he says, we're just going to fill the jars of water. Let's just pretend that it's wine. He gets the master of the feast in on the act, and the master of the feast calls the bridegroom and announces, oh, you've kept the great good wine until now. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Let's all go along with this charade so that the family can save face. That's actually an explanation that's out there to try to explain away the miracle. But it makes nonsense of the story. Absolute nonsense of the story of Jesus and his influence on people. The disciples came to believe in him as a result of this. Not some trick. Not some joke. He manifested his glory in this great miracle. You can't have Jesus without the miracles. Not the Jesus of the Bible. You have the Jesus of your own imagination, but not the Jesus of the Bible. I just heard uh, recently somebody said, you know, God made us in his image, and ever since then we have been returning the favor. We have been making God in our image and cutting him down to size, a God that we're comfortable with. Well, you can't do that with Jesus, not if you really want to know the true Jesus. So the disciples believed in him because he did these sorts of things. Things that show his authority and his power over the created world. They saw him calm a raging uh, storm with his word, peace be still. They witnessed Jesus walking on the top of the sea. And Mark says they were utterly astounded. On two occasions, they were astonished to see that Jesus was able to take some pieces of fish and a couple of loaves of bread and turn them into a meal to feed thousands and thousands of people. And here they witness him turning water into wine. The disciples could not explain it away. They came to believe in him as a result of these things. If you believe that God is the creator of the world, then it's reasonable to think that this God who created the world can intervene in his own creation according to his purposes and plans. And that's what God is doing in Jesus Christ in these miracles. By the way, we believe that God is the creator of the world because the word of God tells us so. As Christians, we believe the word of God is the inspired. This scripture is the inspired word of God. There are reasons even beyond that, that's reason enough, that's foundational. But uh, reasons to believe that God is the creator, when you think of the fine-tuning of the universe, for example, exact chemical and physical properties that had to happen in order to create life and to sustain life. There was a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher named John Leslie, who gave this analogy of the mathematical odds of the universe just happening. He said it would be like going out fishing, 
you take your fishing rod and you say, now this fishing rod can only catch fish that are, now this is his mathematical equation here, he said, 23.257 inches long. And you cast it into the lake. Cast it into the lake, and the first time you cast in the lake, you get a fish 23.257 inches long. Things just don't happen. The creation of the universe is a miracle. The fine-tuning of the universe points to the creator. And if you believe that God is the creator, and God can intervene in his own creation, that's what God is doing here. God incarnate, the Son of God, is intervening in his creation to demonstrate his authority and power over it. C.S. Lewis has a helpful way, I think, of, of reflecting on this miracle. In his book on miracles, C.S. Lewis talks about this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And Lewis makes the point, he says, you know, God sets up the law of nature. And uh, in that sense, God setting up the law of nature means that God makes wine all the time. He uses vegetable organisms that can turn water and soil and sun into juice that becomes wine. And he does it all the time. But in this miracle, only once, this year only, God the incarnate short-circuited the process, and he made wine in an instant. But God's been doing this through the laws of nature. But he just sped things up here at this wedding. This miracle tells us that God is at work in Jesus in a unique way. Only God can do these sorts of things. It reveals this sign, the glory of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. I'm pressing this point here, friends, because we hear oftentimes that faith is believing without evidence. Have you heard that? It's okay if you want to believe, but just understand, with science there's evidence, with faith there's not. If it makes you feel good, if it gives you some sort of psychological uplift, if it creates hope in you, then go ahead and have faith. But you don't have evidence for it. I hope you're not intimidated by that idea. Because it's just not true. Because we have reasons to believe here. That's what the whole point of this gospel is. Giving you reasons to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And the miracles are one of those reasons. These astounding miracles that that just begin to pile up as the story of Jesus unfolds until we get to the greatest miracle of all, the third day, the resurrection of Jesus. Miracles are not the only reason I believe in Jesus, but they're foundational. They're part of the foundation. So when you are going through times of doubt and difficulty, friends, when when you're going through times when your faith is shaken, understand... First of all, that's normal. That's the normal part of the Christian life, to go through periods of doubt, difficulty, questions. Use those questions to pursue answers. Don't feel guilty about that. But also understand that our faith is not based on our feeling. Feelings come and go. Based on facts, things that happened, objective facts in history. And the evidence for our faith rest on these eyewitnesses who were with Jesus and saw him do these incredible things. And they said, God is at work here. The glory of God is being displayed here. And they were so convinced of that, these eyewitnesses, that they gave their life for that testimony. So this miracle shows that Jesus' authority extends over even the created world. It's an authority that only the creator could have. But there's another layer to this miracle. There's another meaning here. 
There's a great spiritual message in this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And the Gospel of John, John really, throughout this Gospel, he's very keen to point out the spiritual message in the various miracles. The lesson that God wants to teach us about Jesus through the signs that he performed. These signs are pointing to spiritual truth about Jesus. So throughout this Gospel, oftentimes you get an explanation of the spiritual meaning of the miracles. Uh, For example, John chapter 9, before Jesus healed the man who was born blind, before he did that, he made one of those great I am statements. I am the light of the world, he said. And then he healed this man who has been living in darkness all of his life. And the point of that miracle, of course, is that Jesus is the light of the world, and those who follow him will not walk in spiritual darkness, those who trust in him. And that becomes clear as that story unfolds. But throughout the gospel, John is saying these miracles are signs that point to a truth about Jesus. So what is the message here in this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine? It does display him as the unique son of God. It does show that the creator is at work in a powerful way in him. But there's another layer here. And I think it goes back to the Old Testament prophecies of what the messianic age is going to look like, what God is going to do, the blessings that he's going to pour out onto the world when his kingdom breaks into this world, the kingdom of the Messiah. And there are several prophecies, of course, throughout the Old Testament of this and several images that are used to convey the idea of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And one of these images is the feast a feast that has abundant food and wine. So, for example, Isaiah 25, a beautiful passage of Scripture. Isaiah 25, 7 through 8. Isaiah is picturing the breaking in of the kingdom of God starting in Zion, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. This is an image of the Messianic age. This is an image of God's kingdom coming through the Messiah. He says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of, here it is again, of aged wine, well-refined. And then it goes on, He will swallow up, the Lord will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isaiah 25, 7-8. What Jesus is doing here, this first sign, is He's signaling that the kingdom feast has begun in Him. That the blessings of the Messianic age are beginning to be poured out through his ministry. The banquet has arrived. Now we know that the kingdom of God has come in Christ, but not yet fully. As you think about what Isaiah prophesies, when he says the kingdom is going to come and this feast is going to happen, he says that death is going to be swallowed up. That hasn't happened yet. Death has not been swallowed up forever yet. The Lord will wipe away tears. We still live in a time of tears and pain. So the kingdom in Christ has come, but not fully. Jesus says in verse 4 that his hour has not yet come. 
And that exchange with Mary, by the way, he's not being dismissive of his mother when he says, woman, don't you understand my hour has not yet come. That, that's a term in that culture of reverence, of, of, of endearment. You remember Jesus on the cross, as he's dying on the cross, he says uh, to Mary, woman, behold your son. And he points to, or he signals that, that, that John, the, John, the gospel writer, the beloved disciple, is going to take care of his mother after he dies. Woman, it's a term of endearment, of reverence. Woman, behold your son. And, and he looks to John and says, behold your mother. He wants his mother taken care of. So this is not a, term, a dismissive term, a demeaning term. But there is something happening here between Jesus and his mom. And there's a separation that's happening. You know, he's not going to be under her authority anymore, under her timetable. He's under the authority of his heavenly father. And he says, the hour, my hour has not yet come. Now, in the Gospel of John, listen to this, in the Gospel of John, that term hour is used in a couple different ways. One is it points to Jesus' death and resurrection, an hour when he's, he's revealed, his work is revealed as the savior of the world. That's one way that that is used. It also points beyond Jesus' death and resurrection to where he will be fully revealed as the Lord over life and death. So we get John chapter 5, verse 28, where Jesus says, An hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear my voice. Jesus says this. There is an hour coming when all those who have died are going to hear my voice and they will come out, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. That hasn't happened yet. That's something that still is to be fulfilled, where Jesus is fully revealed as the Lord of life and death. And so we are still at this period of looking forward to the arrival of that hour. We are in this period of waiting and hoping and longing for that day where Jesus is fully revealed as the Lord of life and death. But in the meantime, the king has come, and the feast has begun. And at this feast, there are many blessings that we are called to partake in. Blessings that flow from Christ to us today. The blessing of fellowship with God. You know, one of the great things about a feast is not just the food. We love to have good food, but we love to have good company with the food. Close family and friends, people we love. So feasting is not just about the food, it's about the fellowship. And at this feast, because of Jesus, we can have fellowship with God, the Creator. And that is the goal of life. We were made to know God, the purpose of life is to know him and to glorify him. And as St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in God. That's available through Jesus, this fellowship, part of the blessing of the feast. There's, at this feast, there's the blessing of fellowship with one another. We are brought together as his family around his table. The lonely are brought into a family. People from different backgrounds Different experiences are brought together in the body of Christ through this feast. At this feast is God's abundant grace. There was abundant wine, and at this feast is the abundant grace of God. The stale water 
the brackish, stale water of religious legalism, which says I have to perform in order to earn God's favor or to stay in God's favor. I have to do that. That is replaced with the sparkling wine of the grace of God, which tells me I'm right with God, not based on what I've done or what I will do, but based on what he has done for me because of his love for me. And he proved that love with the nail-scarred hands of his son. At this feast is the abundant grace of God. God puts us into this relationship with God. The blessings of the messianic age, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of redemption, the hope of eternal life, all that is available at the feast. So this miracle, this first miracle, proclaims the feast of the kingdom has started through me. I was thinking, that wine must have been fabulous. <laughs> you know, I'm not a wine connoisseur, but just imagine, this is the God of the universe who's been making wine from the beginning, and here he is, and he's made this wine. And I bet you that people were talking about this for the rest of their life. And you almost feel sorry for the people who were selling wine, you know, in, Gal- in, in Galilee at this time, and around Cana. You know, you go to your vintner and you say, I was at this wedding in Cana, and they had this wine. Do you have any more of that? You know, you're the hundredth person that's come here asking for this. I don't know where they got it. Well, it's the best thing I've ever tasted. There was a, a bottle of wine sold in October last year at Sotheby's auction. Broke the record for the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. It was a 1945 red burgundy. And it sold for five. And I did some reading about this bottle of wine. Uh, The head of the wine department, Sotheby's, gave this description of the wine. She said, this wine is rare and wonderful with seemingly everlasting power. And then she said something that I don't get, but she said... uh, this wine is comfortable with itself. I'm not, a, again, not a wine, I don't know what that means in wine connoisseur terms. It's not fighting with itself something. Some of you know maybe what that might mean. But I thought that was interesting, she said. This wine has everlasting power. No, it doesn't. I mean, it might be worth it. Maybe you wanted to have that after you spend that much money on it, but it doesn't have everlasting power. What do you do with a, a, a bottle of wine that you paid a half a million dollars for? Do you ever open that up? Drink it. You sell it. So you're not going to be able to taste it, but if you start drinking it, it's going to go away. It doesn't have everlasting power. But, friends, there is a blessing, the blessing of Jesus that he brings, that he pours into us, that is everlasting. It is powerful. It comes from the all-powerful God. It is everlasting. It is eternal. It is fellowship with God, it is the love of God, it is the spirit of God, it is the forgiveness of sins, it is the hope of redemption, it is meaning and purpose in this life. And you can't get that from a half a million dollar bottle of wine. You get it through Christ. So let's drink deeply of his blessings. Let's drink deeply of this blessing, this feast now, and trust him for the blessing that's to come. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who astonished people and changed the world because you were at work in him in such a remarkable way. And it's hard for us to imagine uh, what it must have been like. But we can taste, we can taste the glory of Christ even now as we come to him in faith and trust and um, grow in our relationship with him. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray. I ask that you would pour out your abundant blessings on this congregation, each person here, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.